most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Uh, we have another Orson Welles commentary for us. Uh, just, uh, I think, two left. I think this is the one right before the last one. So this is, oh, this will be the penultimate episode. <laughs> I always like to use that word. Uh, I know what a few words mean. Anyway, <laughs> to the, the pen. very nice, Terry. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Orson Commentaries. I am really sad to see we're winding down on these and uh, wish he could have done more. I would love to have three, four, five seasons of this, but he did one. And uh, not by his choice so much, more or less being forced out, but he'll get into that a little bit on this episode, I believe, mentioned a little bit of it. Uh, anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get started on this one. And I'll turn it over to my buddy Vincent to take us. Go. You're good. Awesome. Yeah, so... Um, as I mentioned last episode, Wells is um, largely starting to reflect on the work that he has done on these, um, I almost said podcasts, on these commentaries. Uh, that was too meta. What have we done on these, on, on our podcast? But, um, and, you know, and I think um, speaking to one of my uh, constant threads over the last couple of weeks is, Wells's work with the NAACP and, um, you know, the, the work for anti-racism. And here we get another example, uh, another piece of evidence to suggest that this is um, Wells not taking credit where credit is not due. Um, he gets this awesome wire from the NAACP, which he strangely, again, uh, misspeaks. He calls it the NCAAP. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to read too much into that, but they even like sign off as the NAACP. So I don't, anyway, he could have just misspoke. Could just be a coincidence, but you know, they, they give him credit. They give him credit. Congratulations. And the, um, you know, president at that point, Walter White even says, you are responsible for this historic event. So we do get the sense that this is a collaboration. How much Wells was involved is always a little unclear, but certainly um, the NAACP and, and much of the um, African-American community that we can get a sense of from the newspapers are really behind and really thankful for the work that he's done. And so I think that's um, uh, a really great thing. And Wells is clearly very shamelessly proud of it, as he should be. So um, uh, two episodes ago or a couple episodes ago, we mentioned, is Woodard his white whale? Maybe, but I, I wouldn't use that uh, metaphor because he's it, you know, he did great work, his show, maybe he lost his show because of it, but he seems unapologetic, and I think as he should be. So it didn't end up destroying him from the inside as a, as a human being in the same way. Um, uh, in this, uh, what I want to talk about in this episode is essentially Wells begins by saying, hey, I got a lot of letters that everybody was confused exactly what the heck I was talking about with uh, Henry Wallace. And Good, I wasn't the I only one. Thought it was, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I thought I understood it. And I think this episode does a, a pretty good job of making it even clear. Um, so I just want to clarify a couple things. So as Terry mentioned um, uh, in a past episode, Henry Wallace and Orson Welles are really simpatico on a lot of things. They want less conflict overall. But where Welles draws the line, very definitive line, where actually he aligns with Truman a little bit more, 
is that Wells is um, explicitly like not not interventionist. He does want the United States and particularly the UN to be involved in um, international um, atrocities, events. He does not want war though, which is where he doesn't want violence. He doesn't want anything like that, but he does want us, um, us the UN to find common ground fighting things like non-democracy, um, hunger, slavery. And he wants essentially the UN to be far more invested in that idea than nationalistic concerns, um, uh, different property, different land rights. He doesn't want that to be the UN concern at all. And so he constantly says, I love Henry Wallace. He's super smart. He's nobody's fool. But here's where I can't agree with Henry Wallace. And that's what he's, uh, he constantly is trying to affirm and reaffirm in this episode and a little bit in the last episode, although he does it in, a, um, in, his, in his mind and also his viewers' ears a little bit confusingly. But that's his main point is that um, we do need to be involved. We do need to make sure that uh, fascism goes away. We're not gonna do that by hiding in the United States. We can't say that Russia can just do what Russia wants to do. We do need to be involved with it. But he wants to outlaw war, which is what he says, make it a crime, no more war, but we are gonna have to be involved in international um, affairs. Um, so he doesn't want us to be isolationists, but he wants us to not have wars, but be involved in the positive outreaches probably. And then also uh, fighting against fascism in various ways, but not in war. Is that kind of, but not an actual fighting. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and in the, in the last couple episodes, that that's what um, Henry Wallace's speech and letter, that's what it was all about. Essentially was Wells um, reading that or knowing that the audience would be familiar with that and saying, I don't agree with the stuff, the ideas that were expressed in this. I agree with Henry Wallace on a lot of things, but not this particular issue, which has come to light. And maybe because he and Wallace were thought to be so close in the past that he felt like he had to come out and, and give his thoughts on that because if he didn't, he was sort of, the implication would be that he believed the same thing as Wallace. And so I can see that. Um, Kathy, right. Well, he was also a substitute for him at that conference that he mentioned in yeah. Providence. So that that should give you a sense of how um, wow. sort of like combined they were in many people's opinion. He said, I'm telling you this on the radio because I'm going to go and I'm going to speak what I think is the Wallace line on every issue dot 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 except, this, except one. this and if you don't like it i'm preparing you for what's what's about to happen and so they are definitely like this they're definitely uh together on many things but this is where he draws a line sure kathy go ahead what were your thoughts on this one well um what wallace was trying to um uh, get the u.s to understand was the russian point of view and i and we talked about that um uh, uh, Orson has, uh, uh, he is politically astute and he's tried to give uh, Russia the benefit of the, of the doubt and be neutral about them for, uh, you know, uh, all through his broadcast. What's going on here? This is of the, um, uh, of the formation of, of the Iron Curtain. And I believe, remember, uh, months ago when uh, maybe it was spring of 46 when Churchill was visiting the U.S. and he talked about an Iron Curtain is descending upon Europe. So what was going on was Russia felt that um, two world wars had started from 
places like Germany of, of trying to uh, take over Moscow. And, you know, so they were really worried about their Western flank. Now they were terrified of Britain. And what they were trying to do, they, they, they were, what the Russians really wanted was a big fat sort of border, a sphere of influence that Kristen is talking about here. Um, and so they really wanted um, uh, to be able to control Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, all those countries up and down the middle to form kind of like a great big fence or Iron Curtain if you're uh, um, Winston Churchill. Against attacks from either Germany or Britain. What Churchill and Britain saw was uh, 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 Russia just uh, 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 rattling across the country like the Germans had done before and making them feel isolated, the only country out there with growing sort of Russian domination. So that's what the U.S. is in the middle of of this sort of big fight between uh, uh, Britain and Russia over what's supposed to happen in Europe. Um, so, sorry, there's my, my uh, lecture to freshmen. Um, I'm, I'd like to know, uh, Vincent, what is the $2 million lawsuit that, who is suing um, Orson for 2 million bucks, which was serious money. City back of Aiken, city of Aiken. They hate yeah. Orson Welles that he, he libeled their town. And so, and now they, you know, they know that he was lying or didn't know the facts. So they are going through the, the lawsuit. I don't know how much further it goes. Um, I know it didn't go anywhere. I don't think he paid them any money, but, but I don't know if he's publicity. just, you know, mm -hmm. exactly, exactly. So I think he's just saying that as, oh, I was sued. Whether or not that lawsuit actually went anywhere. I don't, I don't see any evidence, but it's the good old city he of Aiken. Yeah. He might have been proud of it in a way that, uh, oh well, so. Well, and it could be a, yet another nail in the coffin of the commentaries because it could be that they were going, man, you're getting sued. We got all this negative publicity. Yeah, we got a lot of people speaking up for yeah. you, but we got a lot of people against you. It's like, it's time to end this thing. So uh, I can but, see that. But I, I'm, I'm very sorry that the commentaries are ending. I truly had not known before how politically involved on the, you know, on, on the public national level, Orson was. And I'm so sorry that the progressives, somebody didn't pony up uh, a continued 15 minute time for him to, yeah. to keep this going. Cause um, uh, he's a valuable, a very valuable voice. And um, I think we're, uh, the country is a little uh, sadder or, or, or hearing fewer uh, diff opinions because um, of the ending of his comment. Oh yeah. I mean, cause can you imagine if he kept doing these that I can see once NPR starts and things that he could have been doing these for, we could have 30, 40 years of him doing these theoretically, but no, we don't have that. But again, the conservatives would have branded him a communist and done something like a Charlie Chaplin thing. The minute he goes to Mexico, ref, you know, uh, refuse to let him back in or something right. like that. So that's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to be cynical, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I, I will say that his his career and didn't end up better off, but um, he he was able to leave the country at a time, and he wasn't one of the ones that were so explicitly charged with being a communist like other you know other people were. Right? I mean, right. he was well known to people who were looking for communists to be claimed a communist, but never in the in the explicit government eye um, like others were. And if this would have continued, that's very likely would have gotten worse. He does address it in this episode where he says, 
you know, some people equate progressivism with communism and many communists claim to be progressives. Um, but he says, you know, many, uh, many American Nazis claim to be American and that doesn't make all Americans Nazis. So, um, yeah, I love that piece when he was talking about that. I thought that was a really cool explanation of it that uh, a very nuanced that you don't sometimes you don't get. And uh, so that was that was great. But let's flip over to Terry and get Terry's thoughts on this thing. So I guess I should put on my uh, former newsman uh, hat. It's right behind you. <laughs> um, and uh, and talk about Wells, the journalist. Uh, there are many people who don't like that word used for people who are not news reporters. Of course, reporting the news has changed a lot in, in our history. Uh, it started out as uh, basically a, a PR branch for uh, political um, organs. And is uh, in in many ways that has that has always been the case. There's always been a, a partisan nature to um, to journalism. In Wells' case, uh, even though he was a columnist, I'm unaware of any point in his life when he was actually a news reporter. He talks about you know those of us who covered these events as if he's he's got a press pass. But I and he might have had a press pass, by the way, because as we know, a lot of people who are not, you know, sort of old school mainstream uh, news people have access as if they were covering events. But all of this kind of, you know, squishy language makes it hard to understand what Wells uh, credentials were. But credentials don't always equate to credibility. And Orson Welles was certainly believed by a lot of people, whether he was neutral on issues, whether he was, you know, quote unquote, objective about anything is irrelevant. So many people used to say to me when I was out as a news reporter covering stories that they wanted to know what I thought about stuff, not just to to describe things, but to give them my feelings about stories. And of course, I was raised in an era and trained by those who wanted us to keep our opinions out of our news reporting. But Wells clearly has no such compunction. And so whether or not he was a journalist, I think has to be left up to those who see that word as they do. But he was certainly, without hesitation, a great communicator. He was smart. He had uh, lots of information, even though he mispronounced uh, the NAACP and, and uh, Isaac uh, Woodard. Uh, and you know, he said that we brought uh, Officer X to justice. Well, you know, what does that mean? Yes, he was, was put on trial, but did he really get justice? Did we get justice for that horrific crime that he committed? Uh, if Orson Welles were alive today, it would be interesting to hear what he would say about the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case. I mean, he, he was not without information and not without strong opinions. But journalist, I, I don't know what, whether I would use that word, but a great communicator. No, but uh, I, think, I think he could, if he were on today, I could see like his show between Rachel Maddow's show and Lawrence O'Donnell's show. Yeah. Right in, right yeah. in with that. And you wouldn't yeah, even question it. Right. Like, and that so, would be, that's probably the space he would, he would occupy. Yeah. But, but to get back to, uh, to whether Wells was uh, a journalist, um, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't use that word. I mean, journalism has a very broad definition, 
but he did occasionally get into an era area where he would allow the listener or even push the listener in the direction of treating him like another reporter. Um, but it's a to me, it's it's it shouldn't be a gray area. It is a gray area, but I, I it's the one thing about his commentaries throughout that made me a little uncomfortable. Well, I just look at them as it's in the title commentaries, right? It's he he comments on things, but he doesn't. It's not saying he's a journalist or anything like that. So um, that, that's way I was. He, he was succeeded by people like Paul Harvey, you know, mm-hmm. whose whose radio broadcasts were identified as news and commentary. He yes. did present news, mm-hmm. but clearly he had a point of view, right? And, and that's okay. I I have no objection to people. Uh, making observations and giving their opinions. Uh, it's a story. It's a great American tradition and, and should be defended, but it's just this, you know, when it gets to be vague, when we don't know how um, unbiased a person is, not that there's anyone who's going to be without. Right. Bias, but, you know, I, I get a little nervous when someone says, well, that's the way it is. And he's yeah. not big Walter Cronkite. Well, it, it strikes me that, you know, we get the little ratings now that say, TV, MA, or whatever it says, it'd be lovely if we had a little thing that said commentary or whatever, that, or opinion or whatever that the people would be considered because it, it's both on the left and the right sure. and where folks consider those folks news. And it's like, well, it's not really news. It's more, like I said, news slash commentary with the emphasis on the commentary or the opinion part of it. Um, and and it, it's unfortunate because folks think of it all being the same. I can trust everything Fox tells me. Well, there's certain Fox shows that are more opinionated shows and ones that are more the news. The same thing goes with MSNBC and CNN and all the different news sources we have. And, and Daryl, if you'll, if you'll permit me, I would like to make, uh, to, to present an, uh, a, uh, an, a, a, an opinion. Uh, yes. I would like to advocate for something that uh, disappeared some years ago. I think this it's- is, this is Terry's opinion. Everyone, my, my this is an opinion. Uh, I, I think not it was in the fact-based necessarily. Go ahead, <laughs> we finally Terry. lost the fairness doctrine <laughs> in American broadcasting, and I think that would have helped in this in this arena quite a bit. If if broadcasters were still obligated to present conflicting points of view uh, on both sides, not necessarily equal time, but equivalent opportunities for people to present uh, diverse points of view, and we don't have that anymore. We have lots of channels. People have sort of siloed themselves into their comfort zones, but very few, if any, broadcasters um, do what used to be done by law, where you would have to present, they would have to present both sides or multiple sides of an issue. And that's why you had point counterpoint and all those things and, and why you had Hannity and Combs and now you just have Hannity. But uh, right, but, uh, but like you said, it wasn't always equal. <laughs> I don't think Combs was quite up to Hannity's. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's okay. But it, it's sad to me that many people in America today, regardless of their political persuasion, only get one point of view. In, in the media that they consume. And I, I really think that's too bad. And it has made us a, uh, uh, it, it's made us a poorer country politically. Well, and it goes for me. I mean, my news stream that I have, I purposely have set it up so that I get the left and the right. So, but I, what I get is the extreme left and the extreme right. And so I'm, I, it's so interesting reading these articles. And then I, I read an article and I'll go, Oh, I think that was so and so, and I'll look back and oh yeah, that was from Fox. So that was you know you can you can tell 
where it's coming from but I don't get much in the middle but maybe there's not much being produced in the middle that's and that's why I just get the extremes but I'm just glad I didn't know I thought eventually I would start it would start saying well I'm I'm reading these articles more than others and stop including both sides but it's including both sides all the time so I like that but uh yeah, so set up your news feed so that you're getting both sides of things so you can at least be aware of what the other side's thinking. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, anything else we got to cover on this one or are we good? Everyone's looking at their notes. Hmm, let's see. <laughs> I think we're good. So uh, anyway, enjoy this commentary and uh, one more after this and uh, we'll enjoy that one as well. And then we'll figure out where as a team we're going from there. I have some ideas and Vincent shared some ideas a few weeks ago about where we might go and things. So we'll see. I'm just, I'll say it this week, just who knows next week, how busy I'll get or what, well, I'll remember to mention it, but this has been delightful. Just doing this with you three people and, and uh, exploring Orson. And I, I, I know I, I would have, I would have done all the intros myself on all these commentaries, but my uh, listeners wouldn't have got the insight that they've gotten through you folks. And I wouldn't have gotten a deeper level of this. I would have just been coming on every once in a while going, boy, that was a confusing episode, wasn't it? All right, here it is. And let's move on. <laughs> you know, this way I can say that, but then you guys can explain it to me a little bit about what happened. So uh, it's wonderful. And you guys, the insights you've given are just fantastic. So everybody enjoy this episode. We'll be back another time though, at least, and we'll see you after that. So, all right. This is Orson Welles, and this, I'm sorry to say, is the next to the last broadcast on a series of Sunday commentaries I've been sending out in your direction over the ABC network for just about a year now. It's been hard work. I've learned a lot in the course of knocking these shows together week after week. I think I've gained a few friends, and I'm sure I've made a lot of new enemies. I'm being sued for $2 million, and I've been burned and hanged in effigy because of things I've said on this program. I'd like to thank ABC for the chance they've given me to say those things, and I'd like to say that if I ever get the chance to say those things again, I'll say them again. I've been talking to a microphone for quite a spell now in one capacity or another, but in all the years since I've started, though I've had ratings much higher, I've never had such wonderful letters from people who listen in. Nor so many letters. That means a lot. I'd like to thank you for them. And there have been other things that have cheered me up occasionally about the job or maybe given me the feeling that I wasn't wasting your time altogether. Most recently... There was the case of Isaac Woodward. By now, it's a pretty famous case. Well, it was this broadcast that brought it first to your attention. Woodward, of course, was the Negro soldier who was blinded by the policeman. First, we called the policeman Officer X. But finally, just as we promised Officer X, our investigators dug him out of anonymity. His name is Shaw. And we told Mr. Shaw we'd never let him be. Well, we won't. We told Mr. Shull on this program that we'd see him brought to justice. Well, we have. I'm quite shamelessly proud of the wire I'm going to read you now. It comes from the head of the NCAAP. Congratulations. As a result of your persistent focusing of public spotlight on stormtrooper Shull, the United States Department of Justice finally cracked down. Shaw was yesterday made a target of criminal charge by the Department of Justice for viola violating federal civil rights statute, which prohibits police from depriving a person of rights secured by the Constitution and the laws of the U.S. This, as you know, is seldom used statute passed by Congress in 1870 to implement the 14th Amendment giving, giving civil rights to Negroes. 
This action of the Justice Department is an historic move with profound implications. You are responsible. Please accept deep gratitude of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Peoples, 700,000 members. Yours sincerely, signed Walter White. Yes, I'm very proud of that. Well, some of you were quite disturbed by our stand on the current Henry Wallace controversy. Some of you were pleased. Others wrote for clarification. With these last few minutes left me to broadcast commentary, I'd like to try to sum up what I've been saying lately about foreign policy. I hate war. One of our great presidents spoke for the whole family of man, spoke for the first righteous instincts of every hearth in every law-abiding nation when he spoke that simple sentence. I hate war. It's nothing for me to add that I agree with Franklin Roosevelt. Every mother's son hates war. Every son's mother hates war. But the millionaire press must be answered. Franklin Roosevelt's friend, Henry Wallace, has been called a kind of traitor and a kind of fool. The fact is that Henry Wallace is an honest man and he's nobody's fool. With much of what he's had to say in recent weeks regarding our country's conduct in foreign affairs, I take the sharpest possible exception. I don't hold with theories of the inviolability of spheres of influence. I don't hold with spheres of influence, period. I don't think any national interest, however benevolent, merits any special preserves. I want the wide world to live to be a sphere of influence for the triumphant principle of democracy. Sure, I know the big fishes eat all the little fishes in the sea, but I refuse to embrace the international morality of dog-eat-dog. Dog. Sure, people are selfish and greedy, sure, but there wouldn't even be words for selfishness and greed in any language if there wasn't such a thing as sacrifice and generosity in every language. Let's face the global facts of life, but for the love of heaven, let's not throw down our weapons and surrender because we don't like the view. From where we stand today, the scenery isn't very pretty. Vistas of garbage rise between us and the wild blue yonder. On the most hopeful promontories are strewn waste and heedless litter where the foreign ministers have held their picnics. Up from the darkened valleys floats the reek of unmade graves. Blasted cities hum with the industry of rats. The abundance of the earth rots and festers in the sunlight. If you stop to listen, you can hear the crying of a frightened child. Sure, let's see things as they are, but for the love of man, let's not leave them that way. Sure, I believe in power politics. I also believe in cancer. They both kill a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that people can't do something about it. I recognize that any strategy for peace must acknowledge the realities of power politics, but I deny that peace, any kind of peace, can be firmly founded in a world where the peacemakers cheerfully capitulate to naked force. The naked force isn't so dangerous. The capitulation is fatal. Henry Wallace spoke not only for the common man, but for the blessed cause of common sense when he pointed out in his own words that naked power is not exclusively a Russian argument that naked power as a substitute for law and logic is by no means held in monopoly by the Soviet Union. Naked power is a division of the Red Army, sure. Naked power is a division of the British Army. Armies are naked power and battleships and atom bombs are naked power. Henry Wallace did well when he stood up and with such noble tactlessness said right out loud that no single nation is the enemy of the United Nations. But he did badly, I think, when he added, in his own words, that we ought to behave ourselves and stay in our own backyard. Of course we ought to behave ourselves. We mustn't drop atom bombs on our neighbors just to keep them from making some atom bombs of their own. We shouldn't threaten such things, and even if we don't mean it, we shouldn't talk as though we do. But why should we stay in our own backyard? 
That sounds too much like a nasty thing called isolationism. If it isn't a new way of saying America first, I'm afraid at best it's another formula for non-intervention. And of all the echoing phrases in all the double talk of diplomacy, non-intervention is one of the emptiest. There's no such animal. If you see a man knock down a woman and you don't knock down the man, you probably tell yourself you're practicing the policy of non-intervention, but of course you're doing no such thing. By failing to intervene in behalf of the woman, you are in fact intervening in behalf of the man. Personally, I've always been an interventionist, and I'll bet you're exactly the same thing yourself. From the first, I wanted to intervene against Hitler. I'll bet you did. I wanted to intervene against Franco and Mussolini and Perón. Such poor weapons as I have, I've used against those men. Two of them are still unvanquished, Perón and Franco, and whatever little strength is mine to be counted on the side of their enemies. We're the natural friends of freedom. Henry Wallace is on my side of that battle, the anti-fascist side, and in the showdown, he won't try to pretend that he's neutral. I deny absolutely that a conscious citizen can absent his judgment and sympathy from a question of right and wrong, regardless of where in the world the question may arise. A phony election in Greece or Bulgaria or Mississippi is a matter of concern in Sweden and Guatemala and New Zealand. The voice of our brother's blood crieth unto us from the ground, and the word is, yes, yes, we are every man of us, our brother's keeper. Of course I hate war, and so do you, and so did Franklin Roosevelt. But war came, and our people discovered there were some things that we hated even more bitterly than we hated war. I love peace, and so do you, and so does everybody in the house next door to you. But since peace came, we've all of us discovered again that there are some things that we love even more passionately than we love peace. We're going to be careful not to confuse peace with pacifism. That wasn't one of Franklin Roosevelt's mistakes. Another wartime president, and one that has been noted for his pacifism, spoke with the full resonance of the democratic morality when he said, the right is more precious than peace. Well, it's less than nothing for me to tell you that I agree with Woodrow Wilson. Of course the right is more precious than peace. Progressives have been saying just that for a long time now, saying it about Spain and Ethiopia and Manchuria. It's not the progressives who will be mentioned in the records of this century as the champions of soft peace. Vichy wasn't our solution, Dalin wasn't our baby. Appeasement is the particular guilt of those who use the word against us now. Well, I'm using the word progressive. I don't much like the word. Unhappily, I don't have a better word for what I mean. What do I mean? Well, you, who never once voted for Roosevelt, you who think Wallace is a downy-headed dreamer or a dangerous crank who hate a bestseller called One World, you who are delighted that I am going off the air, you will say that progressive is another word for red, that maybe it lets in lots of pinks, but that mainly speaking, a progressive is a stooge of Stalin's, involved consciously or otherwise in a world plot to overthrow the profit system, alias the American way, and to unseat our form of representative government. True enough, communists call themselves progressives, but don't forget there are Nazis who call themselves Americans, and that doesn't mean that Americans are Nazis. And you, you who are the average member of the Roosevelt majority will say that a progressive is just somebody who believes in progress. An American progressive is an American who does not think that progress is un-American, who believes that the notion that people can make a better world for their children is not a foreignism, but proudly and particularly an American way of thought. Now, there are many, many things going on in Eastern Europe, for example, today that we progressives don't like one little bit. It should be noted, however, that our disapproval grows out of a tradition of moral criticism which is our heritage and which belongs to us.
Our present critics here at home can lay no claim to that tradition. There are many, many things going on in India today that Russia doesn't like, and what's more interesting, that most Englishmen don't like. Many things are going on in Georgia and in South Carolina, which England doesn't like and Russia doesn't like, and we don't like either. Here's a disapproval in which the political opponents of the progressive persuasion cannot have a share. This, our disapproval, is a common hatred of oppression, and we share it with the common man everywhere on earth. This is our bipartisan foreign policy. We are committed to fight slavery and hunger, to fight them to the death. Progressives the world over acknowledge the general guilt and mutual failures of all the nations calling themselves free. But the true progressive believes in progress by means of the orderly process of democracy. The reactionaries nowadays preach a kind of nihilism. Progressive nowadays are less radical. We don't consider that the present crisis offers a simple choice between getting tough or getting soft. We are certain that the world will not be changed for the better by another world war. Only the sworn opponents of human life itself believe that. Those who are busy now manufacturing war are those who would bequeath to the conqueror worm the merest spinning globe of empty ash. Progressives are more conservative. We propose to keep this planet open for business, human business. We don't want to give away our atom bomb, but we don't think it's necessary to blow up the Kremlin to keep the secret. No single nation we think can be trusted with such a terrible toy. No single nation, including our own. Now, of course, I have no commission to speak for all progressives. If I take issue with some part of a speech by Henry Wallace, think how much of what I say here will be cause for quarrel with many of you. It's my comfort that the best of what I have to say is none of it new. It's all been hammered into words of steel and gold by statesmen. Americans like Jefferson and Roosevelt and Wilkie and Wallace. Mere orators and journalists like myself have been spelling out those words since the first prophet came down from the first mountain with the news that all of us who are the Earth's inhabitants are brothers. But this is a time of crisis for the democratic faith. For this time, there can't be too many citizens, big and little, who are publishing abroad these tidings of joy, which shall be to all men the simple truth that peace is possible without appeasement. If there's been a point of purpose to any of these broadcasts of mine, it's to repeat the obvious assurance, peace is only possible with cooperation. Let the victors of an anti-fascist war continue the anti-fascist fight. Let them make that fight by mutual exertion and all-out fight. And then there won't be time or room left on the globe for the aggressions of empire. Our duty is plain. As citizens of the United Nations, we must see to it that the United Nations fulfill the purposes which brought those nations into partnership. There is injustice in Russia's Georgia and in the United States' Georgia. But we can't fight that injustice by fighting Russia or by fighting our own civil war again. We need a tough policy, not with a district or a state or a great power. We need to get tough with tyranny, every form of it, wherever it flourishes. Too much time is being wasted on hysteria about the threat to peace. Too much time can never be given to the care and nourishment of those things which make peace possible and worth preserving. To protect those things, the United Nations were united. Only the protection of those things can keep the nations united. To fulfill the purposes of that partnership is to outlaw war, to declare war a crime by the courts and councils of a militant peace, and more effectively, to see it outlawed as a probability by the logic of history. And now my time's up. I have one more broadcast. I hope you'll join me then next week at the same time. Thank you for your letters again. Thank you for listening to me when you have.
Until next week, I remain as always obediently yours. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.